Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. As a young person, God did some powerful things in my life uh, when I was in college, and he called me to the ministry, and I was impressed with his knowledge, being willing to do that. I mean that he was wise enough to do that. Uh, As a young, ambitious person, I had a, a zeal to do something really significant for him, and I had this burning desire to be used by God in a mighty way. And uh, even though I was being ambitious for God, uh, in my zeal, I was missing something. And I remember praying, you know, God, use me. Lord, I want to be used for you. I want to be used for something significant. And, and then one day I read 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, which says... In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood, hay, and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some are for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy and useful to the master, and prepared for any good work. Paul here is using another metaphor to describe the Christian life. And uh, in this chapter, he's already used several metaphors. And he's used the metaphor of a a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, a worker. And and now he's using this metaphor of a vessel of of gold and silver versus a plain vessel of clay. One was expensive, used for special occasions, and one was the everyday use type of vessel. And Paul urges Timothy to be the kind of person who could be used for his most noble purposes. And as I read this, I remember thinking about a statement I once heard, and that statement was, too many people are praying, God, use me, when they should be praying, God, make me usable. And that's exactly what I was doing. Before I was even prepared in my heart to be a vessel of honor for the Lord, I was saying, God, I want to be someone significant for you. I want to be used by you. And, and I was praying, God, use me. But I wasn't praying, God, make me usable. It's not a matter of God wanting to use us. He's going to use us in different ways. Uh, it's a matter of being ready being prepared to be used by God. You know, we're we're less concerned about cleansing ourselves than we are being something significant for God. We all want to be someone significant, but how many of us want to go through the arduous process of being made usable, going through the arduous process of being cleansed and cleaned? having our our selfish desires worked out of us? Do we want to be gold and silver vessels prepared 
to be used for honorable things or do we want to be common clay pots? So what God's saying, if we want to be vessels of special vessels, then our focus should be not on becoming special vessels, but on cleansing ourselves, preparing ourselves for what God wants to do in and through us. You may think you have impressive talents that God shouldn't pass up or you may think you have an abundance of biblical knowledge that God would be, should be compelled to use you, but the simple message of our passage is that God uses cleansed people. God wants us to cleanse ourselves so we're prepared for his service. Another way of saying that is God doesn't want to use dirty dishes. Can you imagine inviting a special guest to your house and someone really special means a lot to you and and serving them a wonderful meal, working all day to uh, prepare a wonderful meal for them and then serve them with dirty dishes? You wouldn't do that. (laughs) And God isn't going to use dirty lives to serve his purposes in the world. He wants us to to be clean and prepared before he uses us. Paul uh, shared the same truth earlier in this letter. In fact, there's just a verse before this. He says in verse 19, he says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And here he's saying almost the same thing when he says, if a man cleanses himself, and notice that's something we're called to do here, we're called to prepare ourselves, he will be an instrument for noble purposes made holy and useful to the master and prepared for every good work. Now, now, when Paul says a person needs to cleanse himself, don't take that too far, because he's not saying that by our own effort we can make ourselves clean. If that were the case, we wouldn't have needed Christ. But he's saying there, there is something for us to do here. He's saying that you can and must avail yourselves of the means of cleansing that God has provided in Christ uh, and through the Holy Spirit for you. In Scripture, there's several things we're told to do. We're told to confess our sins. We're told to repent of our sins. We're told to put off our sins. We're told to turn from our sins. And if we do that in the strength that God provides, remember that verse earlier in this chapter? Then we're preparing ourselves to be the kind of vessel that can be set apart for God's purposes. So in this passage, uh, we're talking about Ambition, godly ambition. Ambition can be uh, two different, there can be two different kinds of ambition. There can be self-centered ambition or God-centered ambition. Oswald Chamber wrote a book called Spiritual Leadership, and in it he talks about ambition. He says this, he says, the word ambition comes from the Latin word meaning campaigning for promotion. He says that suggests a variety of elements, social visibility and approval, popularity, peer recognition, and the exercise of authority over others. He says ambitious people in this sense enjoy a power that comes with money and prestige and authority. He goes on and says Jesus had no time for such ego-driven ambitions. A true spiritual leader will never campaign for promotion. The ancient prophet Jeremiah gave his servant Baruch uh, some wise counsel when he asked him, are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't do it. Sanders continues, 
Desiring to excel is not a sin. It is motivation that determines the ambition's character. All Christians are called to develop their God-given talents and to make the most of their lives and to develop to the fullest of their God-given abilities and capabilities. But Jesus taught that ambition that centers on self is wrong. True greatness, true leadership is found in giving yourself in service to others, not in coaxing or inducing others, and I would add God included, to serve you. And so here Paul urges Timothy to be the kind of person God could use for his noblest purposes. He's appealing to a desire to glorify God, not to promote himself. The Life Application Bible has a good note here. It says, don't settle for less than God's highest and best. Allow him to use you as an instrument of his will. You do this by staying close to him and keeping yourself pure so that sin and its consequences do not get in the way of what God could do in life. Well, God can redeem any situation. If you get into sin, he can still redeem it. How much better it is to stay close to Christ, ready to be used by him at a moment's notice. And and so we should focus on cleansing ourselves, preparing ourselves, and let God determine the how and the when he will use us. And so then how how do we prepare ourselves? How do we become instruments for noble purposes? How exactly is Timothy to be a pure instrument that God can use? Well, Paul gives two strategies, and I'm going to be very simple this morning. The strategies are run from sin and pursue righteousness. First strategy is to run from sin. Here, Paul here tells Timothy, flee youthful passions. Now, he says flee youthful passions because he's a young adult. There are temptations for middle-aged people, and he would have said flee middle-aged passions if he was talking to them, and he would have said flee senior passions. Uh, passions if he was talking to me but some temptations are are temptations that are unique to young adults and some temptations aren't unique to young adults we all have them but they are very prevalent in young adults and so he's addressing the issue of uh, a young adult going into the ministry uh, and the kinds of temptations that could sideline him and keep him from being fruitful for God And he's saying, flee those things. Flee those kinds of temptations, those kinds of temptations you might face. Uh, The word translated passions here in the ESV is translated desires in the NIV. The New Living says, is anything that stimulates youthful lusts? Uh, The NCV says, "It, it is the evil young people like to do. It's the ambitions and lust of the young. And so you say, well, what are some of these youthful passions? Well, first and most obvious is, of course, there's always that big one, the the sexual temptations. Matt Proctor said this. He said, a man came to an old country doctor saying, Doc, I broke my arm in two places. What should I do? 
The doctor replied, you ought to stay out of them places. I'm glad you're awake this morning. <laughs> but that's really kind of what Paul's telling Timothy here. He's saying, stay away from the places where you might fall. Flee youthful lust. Because Timothy was a single young man with, a normal sexual temptation, with normal sexual temptations, he probably would have to avoid certain places in Ephesus. Ephesus was known for its sexual promiscuity. In the first century, the city of Ephesus was not that much different than modern-day America. It's not much different than our cities. Ephesus was the crossroads of civilization at that time. It was politically known as the supreme metropolis of Asia. Economically, Ephesus was a giant among the first-century cities. Because of its strategic location, it was the chief commercial center of Western Asia Minor. Its harbor brought ships from all around the Mediterranean, and its two major roads gave ready access to the cities up and down the coast and inland both. Ephesus was a great commercial city. Morally, however, the city was bankrupt. The city was full of perversion and pornography, the temple of Artemis, the fertility goddess, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located there. Prostitution, uh, possibly connected with the worship of Artemis, was common throughout the city. In fact, archaeologists have discovered something kind of unusual. Uh, they, they've discovered that there was a brothel right across from the city li library. And in what might be one of the, old, the world's oldest advertisements, <laughs> the oldest sign that has been found, one of the oldest ones, there are engravings in the Marvel streets showing footsteps, showing people how to get to this house of prostitution. You just walk across the street from the library, and you're there. Sexual temptation was everywhere in Ephesus, and, and, and Timothy needed to avoid such places. Matt Proctor says that, like Joseph in Genesis 39, he had to run from these things. And actually, that's good advice for any of the sins that we find ourselves tempted by in life. Run from them. He says, too many of us make too much provision for temptation for too long. We mustn't linger in the presence of temptation. He says, one preacher put it like this, if we hesitate, we contemplate. If we contemplate, we negotiate. If we negotiate, we participate. If we participate, we devastate. And too many Christians never make it to the finish line. Too many ministers never make it to the finish line. Too many people serving God in a variety of ways never make it to the finish line because of moral failure, and their moral failure started when they went somewhere where they shouldn't be and lingered there. The Greek word for flee in our passage is a word from which we get our English word fugitive, and it's saying we should run like a hunted man from sexual lust. But as I said, uh, we're talking about passions of youth. We're not just talking about sexual temptation. That's one of them, and that's a big one, but that's not the only one. 
There are many other passions that are common to young people. And some suggestions as to what these youthful passions might be are, uh, John Calvin said uh, it could be like the propensity of a younger man to lose their tempers and rush forward into heated arguments with more confidence and rashness than people of a riper age. Biblical scholar Gordon Fee suggests that Paul is speaking of headstrong passions of youth who sometimes love novelties, foolish discussions and arguments that all too often end in quarrels. And you'll remember all throughout this passage, he's been talking about the problem of quarrels in the church. William Barclay said, related to the faults of impatience and self-assertion, the love of arguing, the love of novelty that stems from youthful idealism. There's all kinds of things that are temptations for young, young people. Let, let me talk about some things that I, I would put on that list. You know, uh, one thing would be the lust for success. Ambition can be good or bad depending on what it's being directed toward. I, or toward. And, you know, I've met a lot of young adults, many of them going into ministry, who, who have a rather inflated idea of what they're going to do and how God's going to use them. Sky Jethany shares that in his first seminary class, the, the, the students were asked to introduce themselves and say why they enrolled. And he says, I'll never forget what one student said. He said, my denomination wants me to have an MDiv, but once they can see how I can grow a big church, I don't think they'll make me finish the program. He says the priorities of the future pastor were startling, but they weren't alone. He listened to student after student and shared similar types of things. Another student shared how he, he planned to uh, in, uh, have a church, become a senior pastor of a church, and within, in a three-year period of time, turn that church into a megachurch. And, and we can go into ministry with self-serving motives rather than God-glorifying motives. But before you start to think that wrong ambition only applies to people preparing for ministry, listen to what Paul Tripp said in his Wednesday devotional this past week. It, it just felt, uh, corresponded beautifully with what I'm talking about this morning, but he says this. He, he had a, his devotional was entitled, The Dangers of Dreaming. And for trip, dreaming is similar to what we are talking about when we, we, we talk about, um, you know, preparing for ministry, the ambition we have going into things. He, de he defines dreaming as imagination coupled with desire and projected into the future. And, and what, what he's saying is, is the same type of thing that we talk about in leadership when we talk about having a vision. You know how important vision is in leadership. Having a vision is, is critical if you're going to take your organization anywhere. And having a vision is not only critical in matters of leadership, but it's also critical for anyone who wants to make something of their life. So we have to have a vision in front of us if we don't want to just be going through life without any purpose. But Tripp continues and says this. He says, as with most of the things God has made, the fall has made our capacity to dream dangerous. It's essential, but it's dangerous. 
He says, if dreams are, are powered by desire, then as sinners, our dreams always have the potential to be destructive. James says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. That These desires give birth to sinful actions. He's saying our desires can go in the wrong direction. We can have a dream or vision for our life that takes us to the wrong place. And he shares an example from somebody he knew. He said, Fred grew up poor, but he knew what hard work looked like. He saw others succeeding, and he wanted to be comfortable like they were. That's something he didn't experience in his childhood. He didn't want his kids to have to experience his lack growing up. And so Fred's dream, even from a young age, in his dream, he would be very successful in business. He would purchase a luxurious home in an elite community. Fred began to play and replay the video in his imagination of a string of promotions, the house he would buy, the community where he would live, the vacations he and his family could afford, and more. And the longer he imagined, the more detailed his dreams got, and the more elaborate it got, the more control it began to have over his heart. Before long, Fred, Fred's dream was not only of a faint and distant hope for the future, Instead, it became his most prized possession. And Fred became convinced that life without his dream would be unthinkable and unlivable. And as a result, his entire sense of identity and purpose and well-being and contentment and satisfaction was now directed uh, directly at this dream, at realizing this dream. He says you could argue that Fred's original intentions were noble, they were rooted in hard work and providing for his family and biblical concepts. But a hazardous, hazardous transition happened. Fred's imagination had been captured and was now controlled by some aspect of the created world, Tripp says, and the ability to project forward and think about where you would like to be is good. Responsible stewards for the kingdom of God require planning, responsible stewardship, so we must be able to see our goals to determine how to reach them, but be on guard. <laughs> when fueled by selfish desire, your dream, dreams will compete with God for rulership of your heart, and if left unchecked, your dream will functionally replace God as your source of security and hope. There's a point at which that becomes the driving force in your life, and that's sin. That's idolatry. And just like you have to run from sexual temptation, you also have to run from ungodly ambition. Again, Sky Jetney puts it this way. He says, ambition, when combined with the accelerance of ego and insecurity, can be a source of great destruction in our lives. Ambition, when paired with godliness and humility, and guided by love for others, can ignite life-giving change in our world. What he's saying is that ambition that centers on the glory of God and the welfare of others is a powerful force for good, but ambition built on self-centered need to succeed is a sinful temptation. Sexual temptation, selfish ambition are two common um, temptations. Another one is impatience. Ken Hughes talks about this. He says that 
Impatience is a chronic sin of youth. It's tied up with youthful idealism. He says it's incomprehensible to young Christians that the situations they are in can't be changed and changed instantly. What they need to understand about the church is the church, if it has any history at all, is like a huge ship at sea, like an ocean liner. And he says an ocean liner can take seven miles to turn around. And he talks about a lot of the young pastors he's seen who have come into their churches impatient, wanting to see them at a certain place and doing certain things, not really understanding their history or understanding what they are doing or why they're doing it. And, and he says perfectly seaworthy churches have been sunk by impatient leaders. Another temptation that's very prevalent in all ages really is a critical spirit. Uh, a critical spirit's wrong because it's prideful. It causes you to feel superior to others. I, I found a blog on the internet by Sparky Ellis. I have no idea who Sparky Ellis is. But she talks about her problem with a critical spirit. And, and listen to what she says. She says, about two months ago, I started feeling God leading me to be less critical and stop talking badly about other people. He says, I, th I thought it would be easy to stop, but I soon found that I was the author of a perpetual stream of fault-finding and criticism. And I didn't even realize all this was going on inside my head. It wasn't until I tried to stop it that I understood what a hold it had on me. He says, often the critical mindset um, was escaped through my conversations with people around me. Sometimes it was when I was talking bad about a poor person, a coworker at work, or sometimes it was when I was online, and, and it covered a variety of issues, but it was, it was always aimed at tearing someone down or something down instead of building someone up or building something up. She says, when I tried to stop the criticism I was letting out, it didn't take long for me to realize how entrenched it was in me. And I think you find that with almost any sin that you've given into for a while. When you start to, to, start to battle it, you discover what a hold it really has on you. She said, it left me embarrassed, hoping those around me weren't altogether aware of my faults. I only now feel like I'm starting to make headway at curbing this internal and external criticism. I don't know how many times in the past two months I've had to go back to a family member or a coworker or even back to a conversation I had on, on, online and apologize for saying critical things about someone or something. As Christians, we're called to a different standard. She says a, a different goal. Paul tells us to encourage one another to build each other up. Our goal is to lift up those around us. The church does not need more critics. It needs more encouragers. But a critical spirit can quickly become a contentious person. A person with a critical spirit can become a contentious person. And this is definitely a problem that's been being faced in this church. Over and over again, they've been talking about that. And Ken Hughes warns about the love of winning a debate. He says that dogmatism flourishes when you're being fed by an inability to comprehend or tolerate somebody else's view. And you constantly run into this in churches today. It happens when we judge others before we really understand them. It happens when we're looking for gotcha statements to label other believers with. Now, I, I'm not saying we don't need to 
protect core doctrines, we do. We need to, to stand firm on doctrines about who God is, who Jesus is, how you're saved, the authority of God's word, and all these kinds of things. And we must take an uncompromising stand on the, these critical issues, these fundamentals of the faith. But, but let's be honest, not all the things we're fighting over are core beliefs. You know, things like views of the end times, what exactly election means, roles of women in the church, what gifts are for today, how the old dispensation relates to the new dispensation, and I could go on and on. There, there are godly people, God-fearing people who seek to be directed by God's word who come out on different sides of issues like these. And sure, we as a church will have our views on these things. And people most likely will find the churches that they agree with on these matters. But these aren't the core doctrines of the faith that should separate us from other believers. You know, as a pastor, one of the things I'm constantly doing is I'm constantly praying, God, grant us wisdom to know when to ignore unimportant disputes and when to correct damaging errors. Because we're faced with both constantly. And each one takes a different response. And actually, it's interesting to see that in this very passage, Paul has two very different responses. He's been telling Timothy not to quarrel over words and not to get into to arguments over things that shouldn't be the critical issues. And then he warns Timothy not to tolerate the harmful doctrines of Hymenaeus and Philetus who claimed that the resurrection had already taken place. He says they're destroying people's faith. And so within one verse, he's, going, he's sharing both sides of this issue. There's a time to fight for the truth and there's a time to be tolerant of differing views. So then in this section, Paul makes it clear we're to flee from youthful desires and middle-aged desires and old people desires. <laughs> and each age has their own temptations. And we should run from and keep running from things like sexual temptation, selfish ambitions, impatience, hardness, harshness, critical spirit, contentiousness, all kinds of things like this all the things that Paul has been talking about in this letter, that is, if we want to be vessels prepared to be used by God. But understand that removing temptation is not enough, and I won't take as much time here on this next point, but he's saying that we shouldn't just remove temptation, but we should replace it with something else. We should pursue Righteousness, He says in verse 22, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. He says, our minds aren't vacuums. They will be filled with something. Impure thoughts are pushed away only by pure thoughts. In other words, we don't gain freedom just by fighting evil desires. We replace evil desires with, with godly desires. And that's why after saying flee youthful desires, he says pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. John MacArthur defines some of these terms this way. Not the first one. This is somebody else's definition, but the others he defines. But righteousness is a general term that refers to right behavior or conformity to God's word. It's just bringing our, our lives in line with God's word to the best of our ability. Faith in this context, MacArthur says, 
is probably faithfulness. The truly faithful Christian will be loyal to God, to his word, to God's work and his people. Love focuses on the welfare of the loved one, not on self-gratification or self-fulfillment. And peace refers to the bringing together of relationships, relationships between man and man, relationships between God and man, especially relationships with other Christians. As Christians, we're not simply known for what we don't do. We, it's not that we just don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. We're known for what we do do. Show acts of mercy. Love. Developing the character of Christ in us. It's not enough to run from sin. We must also run after the things of God. The next little section here, and I'm not going to go over it, but he just goes back to that thing about the quarrels in the church, and, and he's saying, don't get in unnecessary fights. And he talks in this passage about uh, we want to be kind to everyone. Then he says in verse 25, correcting the opponents with gentleness so that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the evil one after they have been captured by him to do his will. So he's saying one of the reasons we're, we're kind in our relationships with other people and in our discussions and how we work through things is because if somebody is going off track, we want to bring them back in a kind way so they'll listen because our goal is not to win the argument. Our goal is to win the person to bring them back, to bring them to the place of repentance so that they can become a clean vessel too that God can use. Actually, if you look at this passage uh, and try to get a big picture, the big picture I take away is it's about the importance of repentance. It's about the importance of cleansing ourselves so that we're useful to God. It's about the importance of, of developing a Christ-likeness in us. We're going to transition to communion. And I'm going to ask those we've asked to help serve the communion to come forward at this time. And as they're coming forward, let me just say this. this the message this morning reminds us that our condition is chronic. Our fallen natures are constantly reverting to our sinful behavior, so repentance must be a regular thing in our lives. The, the Puritan writer Thomas Watson said this, repentance is spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. One is seeing our sin. If we don't see our sins, you don't repent of a sin you don't see. Seeing our sins, being sorrowful for our sins, confessing our sins, shame over our sins, hatred for our sins, turning from our sins. He said, we'd be so much better off if we really understood the serious nature of our sin and we regularly had times of repentance. And he suggested that one of the times where we should really call ourselves to repentance is at the Lord's Supper. 
He says that's when we should, with tears in our eyes, confess what's been going on in our lives. He says the Passover was eaten with bitter herbs, and, and he says our eyes should be filled with tears of sorrow as we partake of the Lord's Supper. A broken heart and a broken Christ go well together. And so even as right now as we're going to be singing and passing the trays, I want you to start preparing your hearts and asking God, you know, what is in my heart? What is wrong in my heart? What do I need to bring to the surface so I can be a clean vessel? Cleanse yourself. Bring yourself to the place where Christ can cleanse you with an open spirit. Receive his cleansing today. Confess to the Lord what's going on in your life. Church isn't just an activity we go to and participate in. It's where we meet God. And when we meet God, we have to face ourselves. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, ask God to work in you, to bring to the surface those things that are out of line in your life. Confess them to him and accept Christ's sacrifice for you. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.